Volume Two, Chapter One of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Two, Chapter One. The fact is, I have never loved any one well enough to put myself into a noose for them. It is a noose, you know. George Eliot. It was the middle of July. The season had reached the climax which precedes a collapse. The heat was intense. The pace had been too great to last. The rich sane were already on their way to Scotch Moor or Norwegian River. The rich insane and the poor remained, and people with daughters, assiduously entertaining the dwindling numbers of the uncertain, coy, and hard-to-please jeunesse dorée of the present day. There were some great weddings fixed for the end of July, proving that marriage was not extinct. Prospective weddings which, like iron rivets, held the crumbling fabric of the season together. If the unusual heat had driven away half the world, still the greater part of the little world mentioned in these pages remained. Not quite all, for Sir Henry and Lady Verrelst had departed rather suddenly for Norway, and Lord Frederick was drinking the water at Homburg or Aix, and thriving on a beverage which never passed his lips without a mixture in his own country, except in connection with the toothbrush. But John and his aunt, Miss Fane, were still in the large, cool house in Park Lane. Lord Hemsworth was still baking himself, for no apparent reason, in his rooms over his club. Mrs. Courtney and I were still in town, because they could not afford to go until their country visits began. "'Oh, Granny,' said Di one afternoon, as they sat together in the darkened drawing-room, "'let us cut everything.' Do be ill, and let me write round to say we've been obliged to leave town." Mrs. Courtney shook her head. "'We can't go till we have somewhere to go to, and we are not due at Archelot till the first of August.' "'Could we not afford a week, just one week, of the sea first? "'No, Di,' said Mrs. Courtney. "'I have thought it over. Only the rich can have their cake and eat it. We had a Victoria for a fortnight in June. That meant no seaside this year.' There was a pause. "'I wish I were married,' said Di, looking affectionately at Mrs. Courtney's pale face. "'I wish I had a rich, kind husband. I would not mind if he parted his hair down the middle, or even if he came down to breakfast in slippers. If only he would give me everything I wanted. And he should stay up in London, and we would run down to the seaside together, G, first class. I'm not sure I should not take a coupé for you and you should go out on the sands in the donkey-chairs that your soul loves, and have ice on the butter and cream and the tea. And in the evening we would sit on the first-floor balcony—no more second-floors, if I were rich—and watch a cool moon rising over a cool sea. I wish moonlight on the sea were not so expensive. The beauties of nature are very dear, Granny. Sunsets cost money nowadays. Everything costs money, said Mrs. Courtney. Di was silent a little while. It was too hot to talk, except at intervals. "'I don't think I mind being poor,' she said at last. "'For myself, I mean. I have looked at being poor in the face, and it is not half so bad as rich people seem to think. I mean our kind of poorness. Of course, not the poverty of nothing a year and ten children to educate who ought never to have been born. But some people think that the kind of means, like ours, which narrow down pleasures and check one at every turn and want a sharp tug to meet at the end of the year, are a dreadful misfortune. Really, I don't see it. 
Of course it is annoying being less well off than any of our friends. And now I come to think of it, all the people we know are richer than ourselves. I wonder how it happens. But there is something rather interesting, after all, in combating small means. Look at that screen I made you last year, and think of the gnawing envy it has awakened in the hearts of friends. It was a close horse once, but genius was brought to bear upon it. It is a very imposing object now. And then my dear Emersons, all eleven of them. I don't think I could have valued them so much, or have been so furious with Jane for spilling water on one of them, if they had not emerged one by one out of my glove and shoe money. Oh, my dear, poverty does not matter. Nothing matters while you are young and strong. But it presses hard when one is growing old. Money eases everything. I feel that, and sometimes when I see you working a sovereign out of the neck of that hoddy little wooden jug in the writing-table drawer, I simply long for money for your sake, that you may never be worried about it any more. Sometimes I should like it for the sake of all the lovely places in the world that other people go to, people who only remember the table d'hote dinners when they come back, and the books that I cannot afford, and the pictures that seem my very own, and they belong to someone else, and the kind things one could do to poor people who could not return them, which rich people don't seem to think of. Rich people's kindnesses are always so expensive. Yes, I long for money sometimes, but all the time I know I don't really care about it. There seems to be no pleasure in having anything if there's no difficulty in getting it. I'd rather marry a poor man with brains, do my best with his small income, and help him up, than spend a rich man's money. Anyone could do that. I fear I shall never take you to the seaside, my own G, or send you prepaid hampers of hothouse flowers or game. After Mr. Dye's battues, for I am certain Providence intends me to be a poor man's wife, if I enter the holy estate at all, because I, I should make such a good one. You would make a good wife, Dye, but I sometimes think you will never marry, said Mrs. Courtney, sadly. She felt the heat. Well, Granny, I won't say I feel sure I shall never marry, because all girls say that, and it generally means nothing. But still, that is what I feel without saying it. Do you remember poor old Aunt Belle when she was dying, and how nothing pleased her, and how she said at last, I want, I want, I don't know what I want? Well, when I come to think of it, I really don't know what I want. I know what I don't want. I don't want a kind, indulgent husband, and a large income, and good horses, and pretty little frilled children with their mother's eyes, that one shows to people and is proud of. It's all very nice. I'm glad when I see other people happy like that. I should like to see you pleased. But for myself, really, I think I should find them rather in the way. I dare say I might make a good wife, as you say. I believe I could be rather a cheerful companion, and affectionate, if it was not exacted of me. But somehow all that does not hit the mark. The men who have cared for me have never seemed to like me for myself, or to understand the something behind the chatter and the fun which is the real part of me which, if I married one of them, would never be brought into play, and would die of starvation. The only kind of marriage I have ever had a chance of seems to me like a sort of suicide. It seems as if it would be one's best self that would be killed, while the other self, the well-dressed, society-loving, ball-going, easy-going self, would be all that was left to me, and would dance upon my grave. Mrs. Courtney was silent. 
She never ridiculed any thought, however crude and young, if it were genuine. She was one of the few people who knew whether Dyer was in fun or in earnest, and she knew she was in earnest now. "'There are such things as happy marriages,' she said. "'Yes, Granny, but I think it is the happy marriages I see which makes me afraid of marrying. I know it is foolish to expect to meet with anything better than the ordinary happy marriage, and one ought to be thankful if one met with that, for half the world does not. But when I see what is called a happy marriage, I always think, is that all? Somebody who believes everything I do is right, however silly it is, and knows how many lumps of sugar I take in my tea, like Arnold and Lily. People point at that marriage as such a model, because they have been married two years, and are still as silly as they were. But whenever I stay with them, and she talks nonsense, and he thinks it is all the wisdom of Solomon, and she gives him a blotting-pad, and he gives her a fan, and they look at each other, and then run races in the garden, and each waits for the other, and they come in hand in hand as if they had done something clever. Whenever I behold those things, it all seems to me a sort of game that I should be ashamed to play at, and I feel, if that is all, at least all I ought to expect, that it is a kind of happiness I don't care to have. Must love be always a sort of pretense, Granny, and such a blind, silly, unreasoning feeling when it does exist? If ever I fall in love, Shall I set up an assortment of lamentable, ludicrous illusions about some commonplace young man, as Lily does about that pink Arnold? Can't love be real, like hate? Can't people ever look at each other, and see each other as they are, and love each other for what they are? The Lilies and the Arnolds would not marry if they saw each other as they are, my dear, and they would miss a great deal of happiness in consequence. There would be very few marriages— if there were no illusions. Di was silent. Mrs. Courtney stitched a resolution into her lace-work, concerning a man whom no one could call commonplace, and presently spoke again. "'You are confusing being in love with love itself,' she said. "'The one is common to vulgarity, the other rare, at least between men and women. It is the best thing life has to offer.' But I have noticed that those who believe in it, and hope for it, and refuse the commoner love for it, generally, remain unmarried. And now, my dear, send down Evans with my black lace mantilla and my new bonnet, for Mrs. Darcy said she would lend us her carriage for the afternoon, and it comes at five. Put on a white gown and make yourself look cool. I must call on Miss Fane, and afterwards we will go down and see the pony races at Hurlingham. Lord Hemsworth sent us tickets for today. He's riding, I think. End of Volume 2 Chapter 1